Hello and welcome to the first edition of the BJ Psych Open podcast. Uh, my name is Dr. Piyush Pushka. I'm one of the two digital content editors of the BJ Psych Open, along with Dr. Romain Gadolrab. And today I'm joined by two of the authors of a paper published in the May 2021 issue of BJ Psych Open. And we're also very lucky to have a service user who's experienced some of the services that the paper discusses. I will introduce each of the participants. Uh, so the first author of the paper is Alana Day, who is a research assistant and also an assistant psychologist at South London and Maudsley NHS Trusts, where she works for Pickup, which is a service providing CBT for people with psychotic disorders. Hello and welcome, Alana. Hello. Hi. So joining her is Professor Tony Clear, Professor of Psychopharmacology and Affective Disorders at the Institute of Psychiatry, Psychology and Neuroscience at King's College London. He's also a consultant psychiatrist at the Maudsley Hospital. Hello, Tony. Hello there. And last but certainly not least, we have Asta Bilovicute, who is a PhD student at King's College London, researching treatment response in depression. Asta has also suffered with depression herself and has experienced secondary care mental health services in a couple of different places in London. Hello, Asta. Hiya. Thank you all so much for joining us today. Alana and Anthony, we're going to be discussing your new paper, which is entitled A Retrospective Examination of Care Pathways in Individuals with Treatment-Resistant Depression. So I'm just going to start by asking Alana, uh, could you just summarise the paper for our listeners, please? Yeah, sure. So we know that people who have what we call treatment-resistant depression uh, generally suffer a higher burden of illness. Currently, uh, the guidelines for depression recommend a stepped care approach to treating these people. But what we're not sure about is how closely these guidelines are adhered to. So what we wanted to explore here was non-adherence to these best practice guidelines and highlight any treatment gaps that are occurring. Um, so we looked at five treatment gaps in this study. The first one was time to antidepressant initiation within people's episode of depression. We also looked at access to psychological therapy. We looked at time to medication changes. We looked at steps to adjunctive treatment, which is the number of antidepressants tried within an episode, and also access to secondary care. Um, so our primary objective was to see how closely guidelines were adhered to according to these gaps. And we also wanted to look at any participant characteristics that were associated with the extent of these gaps. So I'll just quickly go over what the guidelines recommend before I say what we found. Um, so within the step care guidelines, everyone who shows any persistent symptoms of depression should be offered psychological therapy. They should then be treated within three months of showing symptoms with an antidepressant. They should remain on this antidepressant for four to eight weeks and then switch if there's no response and try combination or augmentation if they don't respond to two first line antidepressant medications. Uh, and then a referral to secondary care would occur if there was a risk of suicide or if they're not responding to two antidepressant medications. Um, what we found out of the 178 patients that we looked at was that about half were waiting a year until initiating antidepressant medication. About 53% received psychological therapy within their episode. And then if we combine these, uh, about 20% did not receive pharmacological or psychological therapy for two years at the start of their episode. 
um, people tended to remain on unsuccessful antidepressants for a long period of time before switching. Most people waiting more than four months um, and 25% of people were waiting over a year before switching antidepressants. 54% uh, of our sample had tried more than three antidepressant medications within their episode and only 38% received some form of adjunctive treatment. And finally, 44% had access to a psychiatrist. Uh, so I think overall these findings demonstrate that uh, our sample of treatment resistant depression patients experienced many treatment gaps in their care. And this shows that there is a need for improvement in models for this population to account for these gaps and hopefully improve outcomes. Wonderful, thank you. Can I just go back to basics and ask Anthony, can you can you tell us what do we mean when we say treatment resistant depression? It's a very interesting question because sometimes it is defined differently, but the current consensus definition is that if you fail to respond to two adequate trials, that's to say at least six weeks of treatment uh, at an adequate dose, so two treatment trials of antidepressants, and you haven't responded, then that defines you in this group of treatment-resistant depression. But, you know, I think most professionals would acknowledge that it's a continuum, you know, that people might not respond to the first, they might not respond to the second or third antidepressant or the combination with psychological therapy. So it's really the degree of treatment resistance rather than it being an absolute binary yes, no. Great. And Alana, you, you, you kind of described what the each of the steps are in the stepped care approach. Um, could you tell us a bit more about you know what actually is the thing, what is the rationale for having a stepped care approach? The stepped care approach essentially, the idea behind it is that you progressively go through each step within the model and then if symptoms remain, you would step up. It's designed to be the most efficient and least burdensome method for service users and services as well. So step one would include psychoeducation, active monitoring, and then if symptoms remain, you'd step up to psychological therapies and medication. And then step three is adjunctive. Um, and then step four would be ECT and inpatient uh, care. Yeah, I, mean, I, I think I'd say it's really trying to, you know, balance the intensity of treatment with the need of the patient and trying to get that balance right. And and I, I think we all, all, ought to be aware as well that it's not, you know, a rigid, you must go through step one, two, three, four. Sometimes people might need to go for, straight into a step three or four approach if they've got a very severe or difficult to treat condition from the outset. So it, it, it's, a, it's a model and a guide rather than an absolute rigid, you must go through this, this, this pathway. Super, thank you. So uh, I'm going to ask Asta, uh, so you've experienced NHS care for depression as, as a patient. Um, I, I just wanted to start with an open-ended question for you, if that's right. If you could just tell us a bit about your experience of mental health care within the NHS uh, for depression. Uh, so I've had depression for quite a long time, um, I'd say about 10-ish years ago, something like that. Um, and um, the kind of pathway that I went through was an offering of antidepressants first. Um, then I had to explicitly ask for psychotherapy. The kind of psychotherapy received initially was um, uh, not exactly helpful 
in a way. Um, there was a lack of understanding of certain other mental health conditions because I've got autistic spectrum disorder. Some of the issues there um, weren't really resolved. So that kind of um, put me off. In terms of um, other offerings, I did go through um, getting CBT again, which took over a year to actually get to. Um, and in terms of accessing secondary care, I wasn't actually a responder to either um, psychological therapy or pharmacotherapy. However, I thought, you know, maybe secondary care line services might be useful for me. So I did ask my GP whether I could access them. They made a referral, but this referral was actually rejected twice by secondary care services. So that's kind of my experience. It's kind of been very resistant to getting help even though I'm asking for it explicitly as it were. Thanks so you've already described some of the barriers um, that, that you've experienced in your care and Alana this this paper is based on an understanding of the particular barriers to receiving optimal care that, that people in general face. Um, so Alana can you tell us a bit more about the barriers as conceived in, in this paper? Well I mean from from what we found in this paper um, we were also looking at certain characteristics that might be associated with the gaps um, so what we found there was that it's a potentially a, a more a complex group of people that are waiting longer to receive initial treatment I mean we can't really know for sure why what's going on there specifically but it may be that people who have other psychiatric comorbidities, uh, these are being prioritised or, or causing some sort of a barrier in a way to, to receiving treatment. Um, and it did also come up that people who aren't receiving psychological therapy or not completing a course of psychological therapy seem to be more, have more severe treatment resistance. So we, we don't, again, we, we can't know exactly what's going on, but it may be that uh, the severity is creating a barrier affecting engagement in a way. Super. And Astrid, do you have any comments on, on the barriers talked about in, in the paper in comparison to you know, what, what you have faced? Yeah, so um, the thing I wanted to mention in terms of barrier as well is, um, so a, a lot of the CBT style of therapy is um, marked by um, psychological scales um, each each visit um, that you go through and essentially um, the monitoring of those scales kind of can determine whether you get uh, further treatment so because I didn't actually respond to psychological therapy um, there was reasoning that I shouldn't get further psychological therapy because it wasn't working and so I was just kind of left without anything <laughs> mm. yeah and I, I guess that kind of speaks to the a number of issues, one of them being that a guideline is a guideline. It doesn't dictate, you know, individual clinical practice and doesn't necessarily cater for all of the other things that might be going on, A, with a, an individual patient, B, an individual clinician, and C, you know, what's going on in the system uh, in general. I'll perhaps just move on to the next thing I was going to ask which was 
Alana, can you, can you just go into a bit more detail about what exactly it was that, that you did? Uh, so how did you find people? What did you do with them? And, and what exactly were, were your findings? Well, so the data that we were using for this research uh, was, it's all re- it was all retrospective. So we were using data that we collected from the LQD study, which is a study that's looking at a pragmatic trial where patients are recruited at the point where the clinician should be considering a pharmacological augmenter in normal practice. And then as part of the study, they would receive either lithium or quetiapine augmentation. And we came up with the gaps by looking at the, the NICE guidelines and the British Association for Psychopharmacology guidelines uh, to come up with, with the gaps. And then we used the data that we had at baseline from the LQD study to sort of compare uh, what we had uh, to what the guidelines were recommending. So can I can I just come in there on it? You know, one, yeah. one of the things uh, I, uh, with the LQD study, I mean, I think doing the LQD study almost pushed us to look at this because one of the things we found was that we thought these people who were coming for augmentation therapy, they've had treatment resistant depression, they've had two, three, four different antidepressants. We thought that there'd be a lot of them in secondary care already and that they'd be getting active treatment. But what we found more and more as we started doing the study was that a lot of these patients are in primary care, they've been on well for many years, they've had one, two, three antidepressants, but not much is being done with them. And so we sort of almost thought, hold on, there are gaps here. Why are these people in primary care? Why are they not getting treatment? Why are we not seeing them in our hospitals? Why have we got to go into primary care to find them in order to you know, get them I- into the study so they can get the treatment they need? So it was almost because of what we found in the study that we decided we have to look at this in more detail. Great, thanks. I mean, that opens up a question, I, I guess, of, of what you do next, because so you were pushed into this or the, the data kind of led you towards this this paper, you know, publishing or investigating the research on which this paper is based. Um, and this paper demonstrates the gaps that are there. But it, as far as I can see, it doesn't answer that question of why, you know, why people are actually facing the, those barriers. Uh, am I right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think I think that's that's very important. And it doesn't answer that. I mean, obviously, <laughs> a paper can only do one thing at a time. But I mean, I think, you know, we do know there's all sorts of reasons why um, people may not get the treatment they need. And, and, and you're quite right when you say there's patient factors, there's clinician factors and there's system factors. You know, um, you know, amongst patients, there may be a stigma about coming forward. There may be a lack of knowledge of what's available or even a sort of lack of insight into you know, the, the nature of their condition. But also, I think it's important patient preference. You know, people may have very clear preferences, even if they do acknowledge there's a problem. They may have a preference for no treatment, for alternative treatments, for medication, for psychological therapy. Um, but I think what Asta is showing is that even if they do have a preference or a knowledge what they want, that there are barriers in the system. And, um, and that's, I think, where we have to try and uh, work on that. And the system, you know, it can be clinician factors. Do we identify these people? Do, do, do the GPs or the psychiatrists have enough training? Is there enough resources? Uh, and I think the answer to all of those things is probably not, and that we can and should improve those factors. And, and I think the thing that sticks out for me, you know, we often talk about, you know, we need more treatments in psychiatry. Treatments are not good enough. And of course, to some extent, our treatments 
can be better and should be better. But I think it's equally important to know that we've got effective treatments that are not getting to people who need them. And, and, and how we do that is very much a, a matter of policy and education, as, as, as I said. Just following up on, on that, I mean, one of the findings was that the people in your paper recruited from secondary care were more likely to have received an adjunctive on top of their uh, initial antidepressant. Does that suggest that secondary care doctors are following these guidelines more to the letter, which is perhaps what you might expect as they have more experience and knowledge? Um, or is that too simplistic a way to explain that association? Yeah, I mean, I think I think the thing is that most augmentation therapy will be done by secondary care. You know, GPs generally, unless they have a particular interest or training in psychiatry, wouldn't feel comfortable with initiating augmentation therapy. So I think I think the pathway that, that we've identified and I suggest is, is a referral into secondary care after those two failed treatments or, or you know, tr f failure of psychological therapy for secondary care to consider augmentation. Um, but even in secondary care, many patients were not getting that treatment. It wasn't the case that, you know, it was being adhered to very, very rigidly. Most people were still not getting augmentation even in secondary care. So, so I, th I think it's not just that. And another sort of gap, just to go into one specifically, Alana, fr from my own clinical experience, I know that, you know, some people don't get referred for a psychological intervention, not because they're not offered it, but actually because they decline it. So that's kind of a patient factor or they start it but then stop engaging with a you know for example a 12 session intervention before they finished all 12 sessions um were you able to account for that does it does that still count to the treatment gap according to this paper um unfortunately because uh, all of the data was retrospective we couldn't account for that so i mean we have to also think about the fact that the study is only focusing on people's current episodes. So from my experience of speaking with the patients that come in for the LQD study, many of them have tried psychological therapies in previous episodes. And if they don't get on with it, then they won't have tried it again in their in their current episode. Um, it might also, like we said before, just be highlighting another flaw in the step care model to not account for patient preference. So it is uh, could still be considered a gap, I would say. I, th I think it's also important that we we were able to try and look at what we call an adequate course of psychological therapy, which would be the people who completed, um, you know, the sessions that they were that they were supposed to. Um, but but you know, this is patient reported data retrospectively, as Alana says. So you know, the accuracy is 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 somewhat limited by that. But even even if you look at adequate or inadequate treatment, the the, the results were very similar. Super. Um, I'll just move on to my next question, which was. Can you tell us about which kinds of patients actually experience treatment gaps the most? Uh, and you know what what did you make of that? Yeah, so I mean, I think we touched on on this already. So we looked at certain characteristics that were associated with the gaps. And what we did find was that um, the time to initiating antidepressant medications, what was associated with longer delays was people who were on more current medications, um, they had more psychiatric comorbidities, more previous episodes and a, a longer episode duration. So that would indicate potentially more, a more complex group. Um, people who were on more antidepressant medications within their episode uh, tended to have longer episode durations, more severe depression and more severe treatment resistance as well. 
And one of the interesting factors is cause and effect in all of this, because you know we can't unravel that from a cross-sectional study like this. You know, the fear, the concern is that if you delay treatment at the beginning, you might be causing more problems later on. There is some evidence from some other studies that the longer you leave depression untreated, the worse the outcome. And, you know, that might be the natural history of the depression. It might be that if you leave depression untreated, other factors come in. It affects people's lives, relationships, affects their physical health as well. And, you know, that might become a, a bit of a vicious cycle, a sort of snowballing effect that makes the depression worse. It might be some biological factors we don't know about. But equally, it might be the other way around. It might be that if you're more severe to begin with, it's harder to get care. It's it's more difficult to if you've got to be pushy, as Asta saying, sometimes you've got to ask for things. And if you're depressed and hopeless, you may not feel able to or feel there's any point in, in doing that. So it's hard to un, un, untangle cause and effect in that relationship. Yeah, well, we also did find that those who experienced longer delays to treatment, uh, they had tended to have tried more antidepressants within their episode as well. So this would sort of indicate that that relationship does exist where under treatment might be leading to more severe treatment resistance. Yeah, uh, that was a really interesting thing that was mentioned uh, towards the end of your paper about this link between under treatment um, and uh, more severe depression later on. I do have a specific question about that. Uh, I just wanted to check with Asta if, if you wanted to ask anything or, or comment on anything that we've just said there. Yeah, honestly, the only kind of comment I have about all of this is um, I think that the stepped care approach within at least GP practices, I think it needs more work in terms of both patient preference and kind of recognizing when um, essentially a patient has failed to respond and to kind of push up the severity and maybe consult with someone that has more knowledge and experience like a, a psychiatrist rather than the GP themselves trying to solve the problem. But like I said, secondary care is kind of, at least in my experience, unwilling to take on patients that they don't deem as severe enough. I'm not exactly sure as to why, but that's just um, kind of my experience anyway. Super, thanks. So yeah, just coming back to this uh, link between under-treatment and more severe depression. Uh, so you found that 36% of people uh, were not treated with a medication for two years or more into an episode, and around half of people were not treated with a psychological intervention for two years or more. And around 20% didn't receive either for two years or more. So if you could just talk a bit more about that, you know, particularly as the paper links your findings to these other papers in Germany and America that have found this association between undertreatment and severity of depression. So that the less you treat early on, the more depressed someone ends up. And, you know, what can clinicians um, and people designing services learn from this data? And what should we be taking from that? I mean, I, th I think it's, as I said earlier, that, I mean, there are there are these other studies and some of them are prospective, that they actually follow people up. So you take people, a cohort of people, and you look at the outcomes um, after you've already measured the, the delays to treatment. And, you know, that's the most powerful way to, to disentangle cause and effect. 
And there's not a lot of papers that do that, but there are some that, that do suggest there is at least one aspect of the relationship is causal, that delays to treatment causes a worse outcome. I mean, of course, we can't do a randomised study. It's not ethical to sort of do the gold standard, which is we randomise people to early treatment versus you know, late treatment, because that's denying people the care they need. And, and, and so you can't get the sort of gold standard randomised trial of this. Um, so you have to use the, you know, the best naturalistic designs you can. But like I said, I mean, I, th I think it's complex. I, th I think, you know, Lana mentioned a lot of these people are more severe and complex and have comorbidity, psychiatric comorbidity. I also think that we shouldn't forget a lot of it is also physical health comorbidity. A lot of the uh, the, the people with treatment-resistant depression have, have poor physical health. And sometimes I think for doctors, it's easy to focus on the physical ill health, the physical disease. Doctors are sometimes more comfortable with that. And, and that might lead to missing the associated depression and the, the treatment resistance or even saying, well, of course, it's understandable that you're depressed because of your poor physical health. But in fact, you know, it, 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 it isn't. It's still a, a condition that can and should be treated. So, you know, I think I, I think there's many aspects to the delay and as always, you know, I'll, I'll say we need more research to understand what they are and what we can do about them. But I, you know, I, th I think it is still an under-researched area. Yeah, thanks. So, as you say, it's complex depression or men mental illness in general is multifactorial in terms of the things that have caused it and within people's uh, lives, the kind of things that are going to be able to help them are going to be different for each person. Whereas the actual stepped care approach is quite linear and uh, simplified, which makes it helpful as a guideline for clinicians to follow. But I just want, like, do any of you have any comments on the fact that the paper has shown, has illustrated that lots of patients, they're facing barriers to actually receiving what is prescribed within the stepped care approach. Does that mean then the various things that could explain that are, as I said before, problems with clinical practice, problems with the system or problems you know, related to the patient themselves. The thing that I didn't mention before was, is this a problem with the stepped care approach itself? And I wonder if any of you have, have any comments on, on, on that. I mean, I, you know, I think, as you say, it is simplified and all of the guidelines we have are exactly that. They're guidance. They're not compulsions. They're not very strict models. And I'd say the same for, you know, I, I'm, I'm the lead author on the British Association for Psychopharmacology Guidelines, which come out again to sort of help clinicians. But we state at the beginning of that very much that a rigid adherence to guidelines can in itself be harmful. There are times when you need to go outside of the guidelines and that you know individualized care is very important so i i don't think there's a problem in the step care approach per se i think it is a helpful framework i think if you rigidly adhere to it that would be a problem and i think that we've identified there are problems in actually getting the things that are recommended via that pathway in the first place Asta, did you have any comments on on that question um yeah, I don't know if it's a problem with the step care approach per se. It's I think it's it's more of a problem of at least for me breaking through to secondary care. It's I I don't know whether it's an issue of being taken seriously or not because um a referral was made in my case twice and rejected twice from secondary care services like I said. So um I by the guidelines, I should have been able to access secondary care, um, but 
I still was not able to. So something is kind of stopping this service. I think potentially it might be um, a funding issue or something like that, because um, you have to reserve secondary care for the more severe cases. So, for example, people that are actively suicidal, which I didn't qualify for. So potentially that. I think that's a really important case, Esther. And you know, it's really saddening to to you know to hear the fact that on two occasions you couldn't access that treatment. And I, and I think our experience from the LQD study is that these people who, as I said, were languishing in primary care, were not bothering anyone in in the sense they weren't going to their GP perhaps because they didn't think anything could be done, and they weren't presenting as suicidal or risky. And a lot of our mental health services are set up for managing risk. I'm not saying that's wrong, of course, that that needs that's a very important aspect. But I think the correlate of that within the funding constraints is that what I would consider severe needs, severe unmet needs, treatment resistance is is overlooked at the moment. Yeah, so I think it would be tempting to read this paper and think, OK, we need to focus on training people, uh, clinicians to follow the guidelines more to the letter. But actually, what your case is illustrating, uh, Aster, is that the guidelines were being followed by the clinicians involved. But the thing that was the main barrier that was stopping you in that case was related to resources, really, and to the way the system is is set up. So there's, uh, you know, political implications for, from this paper as well that we shouldn't ignore. Yeah, um, I'd I guess I would also say that I know of another person with um, quite severe depression that had the same experience as me. They didn't get treatment until they actually had an active suicide attempt. That was then they actually had um, access to secondary care. Yeah, it's very saddening um, to hear. I mean, following on, um, you know, resource implications, um, uh, which you know, are even more uh, acute now following or during and following the the pandemic. Um, Alana or Anthony, I think this data was collected before the pandemic. Uh, I just wonder if you have any data that you're working on from the time of the pandemic, Um, or, you know, if not, perhaps you could speculate on how the pandemic might have actually affected if if you had done, done this research during the pandemic. I think, um, I mean, Alana has been seeing a lot of people during the pandemic, following them up with their treatment. I mean, most of this work is pre-pandemic. We, we had to stop the work during the pandemic because, you know, most research was, was was put on hold whilst we were focusing on clinical need. But Ilana, I mean, what's your experience of the effects of on patients of the pandemic, but also on their ability to to access treatment? Well, I mean, the, the people that I speak to coming into LQD tend to already be quite frustrated with services along a similar strain to what what Asta was saying, even pre-pandemic. Speaking to people since the pandemic seems to have affected access to getting active monitoring by GPs a lot more. I've spoken to a few people that have actually come off their antidepressants only because they're struggling to get GP appointments, struggling to get prescriptions. so it, I think it definitely has affected to an extent people's ability to get the, the proper care uh, from their primary care clinicians. OK, thanks. So we are approaching, I think, towards the end. Uh, I just wanted to uh, you've mentioned the LQD research uh, and that project. 
couple of times. Um, I just wanted to ask you, Alana or Anthony, to just tell us a bit more about that whole project um, and what other research we can expect to see coming out of that project in the future. I mean, I can I can tell tell you a little bit about the LKD study. I mean, Alana uh, is is one of the main people who's actually doing the hard work of recruiting people and and, and following them up. And uh, you know, it is difficult to do research in this area. But the LKD study is really trying to expand our knowledge about these augmentation treatments we're talking about. People who fail to respond to two or three antidepressants, you know, we suggest that's the time at which they should be having an add-on augmentation therapy. You know, there are three first-line therapies, lithium, quetiapine, and aripiprazole, and we're comparing lithium and quetiapine because they've never been compared head-to-head beyond six weeks. And, you know, we know that treatment-resistant depression is not just a six-week condition. It's it's a long-term condition that can relapse and remit. So we wanted, in the first case, to understand, is there a difference in the effectiveness of these two treatments over 12 months? And if so, what are the predictors of who might do better with lithium, who might do better with quetiapine? Because they're very different different drugs and have, you know, different effects. So we've almost finished recruitment. It's been a five-year five year trek to sort of start to finish we're we're 90 97 percent or something of the way through now the pandemic unfortunately delayed us by by a year or so um hopefully this time next year we'll have followed done the 12-month follow-up of all of the patients and we'll be able to understand you know is lithium or quetiapine a preferential treatment for these patients and if so as i said which characteristics or which factors might might suggest one or the other and you know we are undertaking other studies of different augmentation therapies we're looking at you know, most of our treatments act on certain chemicals like serotonin. We're looking at dopaminergic strategies. So there are some new dop- dopamine agonist treatments which haven't been well studied yet. And we think that that might be a different treatment approach. So we're doing a placebo controlled study in treatment resistant depression next, looking at whether a dopamine agonist might be you know, a, a, another strategy. Great. Um, so, going to ask each of you now: what kind of what, what's the biggest take-home message for you, and what do you want readers of the paper or listeners to the podcast to actually remember uh, from this paper? I'll start with Alana. Yeah. So, I mean, I think it's quite clear from what we've spoken about today that there's something missing in the care for this population. I think it it will be important to research this further to sort of figure out, try and figure out the the cause effect and and try and pinpoint exactly how to improve the outcomes. But um, yeah, I think it's uh, it's be it's this research has really, really shown and uh, where where these gaps potentially are. And uh, it's important to try and pinpoint the systemic and clinical failings occurring to try and make positive changes. Thanks. Tony? Thanks. Yes. I mean, I've I've got two main things I think that I want that, that I want to sort of point readers to. The first thing is just looking at the differences across the country. You know, we looked at three different areas, and within those three different areas, we found very different uh, results in these in these findings. So, for example, in London, we found a much less coherent pathway than in the other sites, which were Oxford and Newcastle. So, I think it's important to realise that you know some areas may be doing better than others, or worse. You know, some areas may be even worse than this. So, you know, look at your own setups locally, and how does this compare to your experience? But I think the main message is that we do have good treatments. We talk all all the time about we need research on new treatments, better treatments, but we do have good effective treatments, but we're still not getting them across in a timely way 
we're not monitoring them, we're not changing them quickly enough if they're not working. And if we can only get better at that, if we can only use our existing treatments better, we're going to benefit a lot more patients even before we get any, any advances in new treatments. So that's that's the main message I, I get from this paper. Use what we've got better uh, at the moment. Super. And Asta, you have the last words. Uh, yeah, so I completely agree, agree with um, both Alana and Tony. Um, I guess the thing that I would mention is identifying not only the gaps, but kind of um, finding out. So, for example, in my case, a treatment failed and nothing else was done afterwards. I don't think that there was a plan to do anything if the, the treatment failed. So identifying, so kind of just not leaving these people alone, even if they ask for further treatment, because it's just like, this didn't work. So what else can I do? So you just kind of get left alone. So I think kind of finding those kinds of gaps that may make it even worse for those kinds of patients, um, because it's a really horrifying experience to kind of just be told, yeah, that there's really nothing we can do. Thank you. So Alana Day, Professor Tony Clear, Asta Bilevichute, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. I'm sure that would have been very interesting for our readers. Uh, just to remind everyone, the accompanying paper is available in BJ Psych Open. It's open access, as all uh, BJ Psych Open papers are. It's called A Retrospective Examination of Care Pathways in Individuals with Treatment-Resistant Depression. Thank you for listening to this BJ Psych Open podcast. For the latest updates, follow us on Twitter at the BJ Psych. To listen to more podcasts from the BJ Psych Journal portfolio, visit us on SoundCloud or search for us online. Thanks, everyone. See you next time.